Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, another of the 1939 nominees, starring Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur in a Frank Capra classic. Yeah, that when I watch it, having watched Mr. Deeds, has the fingerprints of being a Mr. Deeds sequel all the fuck over it. Yes, which is what it was intended to be, but then Gary Cooper wasn't available or something? Yes, he was filming something else at the time. I would need to open up the Mr. Deeds page to see it. But I also think having watched Mr. Deeds, the big problem I have with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is it isn't a Mr. Deeds sequel and kind of suffers in comparison to Mr. Deeds. It's still a good movie. I'm not going to like shit on it for an hour. Yeah, I'm not going to shit on it for an hour either. But I do have to say that it is almost impossible in the midst of everything that is going on politically in the current environment to watch this movie and not be like, oh my god, there's so much about this movie that has been taken and twisted and perverted. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I definitely think, like, I don't know why The West Wing gets so much shit when, like, yeah, <laughs> this movie is here. Yeah, it's like, what if instead of taking a really nice guy with a great admiration for the American project, but no government experience and putting him in Congress, we took a fucking asshole with no respect for anything and put him in the White House. Yeah. Also, the filibuster being this like incredibly grand and brave thing. And I'm like, wow, that is not how that is anymore. <laughs> yeah. Nikki watched it with me and was like, do you suppose Mitch McConnell watches this to make sure this never happens again? Has just watched it to be like, well, we got to close that. Nobody can do that anymore. Except for like <laughs> Ted Cruz did it not unrecently. Right. Reading Green Eggs and Ham for like 18 hours or whatever it was. Right. But one, you don't have to do it. You can just do a pocket filibuster i forget what name they have for it which to me sounds like a tamagotchi version of some kind of congressional rule two you need more support than just one guy in order to do it now you in fact need 41 people in order to do it and those are the big like just process changes about the floor of the senate but it is weird how much of this movie revolves, and this part I think has aged kind of well, around the dissemination of information and how people learn about politics. Yeah, that was really striking too. And also is impossible not to compare to our current political situation. Oh, for sure. I guess we should like get into the plot of this thing because there's sort of interesting things to say about each 10 minute chunk of this movie. I think this will definitely be one where we review it as we go through the plot. So we open up with Frank Capra regular Guy Kibbe as the governor of... Somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. It's like 
Wytanishton, just like somewhere west of the Mississippi. Iowoming. Yeah. And one of the senators for that state has died, and therefore he can and has to name a replacement for him. And there is a um, extremely cutting sequence of him getting his marching orders from a political boss and then going to a public hearing about it and getting screamed at by the public who needs to be the new senator, and has these sort of two names that he is weighing when suddenly all of his kids start asking him to nominate somebody else who is Jefferson Smith, who's played by James Stewart, and who you know from the title of the movie is who he will eventually pick, but who is also very clearly, you can swap out some details here for Mr. Deeds. Not even really the populist pick, but this very strange... He's very much of the people... And is also kind of a weird, sweet dude. And his big thing in this movie is that he runs sort of a thinly veiled version of the Boy Scouts. The Boy Rangers. I think there's a whole sequence in Mr. Deeds where they talk about him being a Boy Scout when he was a little kid. That feels like you could have built out from that. And then in what is the first thing that made me and Nikki laugh out loud, he flips a coin to decide between the two names and it lands on its side next to a paper that has a huge headline about Mr. Smith. And he goes, good enough for me. And the scene with his kids at dinner where they're like, you have to make a Jefferson Smith is absolutely hilarious and is what I wanted the dinner scene in You Can't Take It With You to be. My favorite thing about that is that even though the kids are quote unquote right because Mr. Smith is who is picked and turns out to be like a great representative, spoilers for this movie. Senator. Senator. I mean, in terms of representing his state. Ah, yes. But even though they are right, they are yelling things that don't make any sense. Like at one point, one of his clearly like 12 year old sons yells, there's 50,000 kids in this state and they vote. (laughs) And it's like, no, they don't. (laughs) Yes. They're just so passionate that the fact that their arguments don't make any sense is just kind of an extremely good joke. Yeah, and all of their reasons are like, but everyone likes him. That's not a reason to be a senator. Right. (laughs) He's great. You have to do it. Yeah, so then they have this scene that comes after that where it's not his swearing in, but he's like lauded in his state and there's a big banquet Mm -hmm. and the kids are there specifically the kids of the governor and the one of them is giving this speech and he stumbles over the words and his older brother is trying to feed him the lines and he says something like oh shucks just you're great and here's a briefcase you can keep your laws in it (laughs) there's so much good cute kid work in this movie like i mean spoiler alert the end of this movie is absurd and the only thing that makes it at all seem realistic is one our villain who we are about to introduce is so specifically drawn by claude rains like he's such a particular guy that the turn in him that would be kind of absurd in today's political climate is at least like okay well they've laid some groundwork for that and two Every time it seems like Mr. Smith ought to just be utterly defeated by the process of politics, a cute kid comes in and gives a really good performance going like, yeah, Miss Smith, keep going. And 
it works like every time for me. Yeah, there's a lot of kids in this movie and they don't have a lot of screen time, but they're used really well and they're all really, really good actors. And there's a lot of them. Yes. Even ones who don't have lines. I'm like, damn, that kid can act. Yeah. So we sort of have... Mr. Smith giving his speech, and it's kind of got a humble, aw shucks equality to it, but it also establishes that his father had this relationship with the senior senator, Joseph Payne, from the state, who we've seen with the big evil political boss character earlier. And Joseph Payne is played, I would say, really very well by Claude Rains. Oh god, beautifully, I think. As a conflicted figure that has kind of Honestly, this is kind of the performance I feel like they were going for with Javert of like this concept of being conflicted, but at the same time, like continuing to make the bad decision over and over again that did not work at all in that movie, I think works great here. Partially because that's a choice that works for that character. Well, I also think that there's a major opposite between Joseph Payne and Javert, which is that Senator Payne knows in his heart what is right, but follows the party machine instead of the law. Whereas Javert is so lawful evil (laughs) that he struggles at the times where he has a desire to be chaotic good to the point where it makes him kill himself because of it. Senator Payne being under Taylor's wig is definitely not lawful evil. (laughs) He's like, this is just how it works. Yeah, exactly. That's the sort of established relationship is that Mr. Smith's father and Senator Payne used to be these like young firebrands and being a young firebrand champion of lost causes literally killed Smith's dad. You get the sense in a way where it's never specifically laid out for you, which I quite like, that that was a really life-changing moment and it kind of broke pain and that he kind of decided like, well, you fucking can't fight City Hall. There's no point in doing this. And all of that is laid out very quickly and efficiently in the speech that Smith gives and this little exchange that they have on the train on their way to Washington. They get to Washington... We establish Mr. Smith's, like, 18 weird, charming quirks, like, that he has a bunch of pigeons. Which we never see again. No, it's just a way to reference what a weirdo he is. And then we establish Senator Payne's hot daughter that's supposed to give us a love triangle. And, like, I guess does, but I would say is kind of the least effective part of this movie. Susan Payne. Yes. Who is evil. Yes. Like, just so clearly established from word go. It's weird because she's established in very 1938 ways to be evil, but then eventually becomes just like timelessly evil, you know? Right, right. Like, she's a hussy in a 1939 kind of a way at first. Yes. Where you're like, I don't know, she's just kissing some guys at a train station. I don't know what everybody's so upset about. And then eventually is just like, oh, you are vanity personified. You're a bad person. (laughs) But Smith manages to wander and bumble away into this travelogue sequence about Washington, D.C. that is very effectively done in a lot of ways. Mostly an ending on the Lincoln Memorial and having a small child read the Gettysburg Address off of a wall. Yeah, so that scene, it was too long, and I was sitting there going, my god, did he just, like, hop on a tour bus? And then it turns out that actually, yes, he did just hop on a tour bus. Yes. But the scene in the Lincoln Memorial, 
doesn't make up for the fact that it is overly long because most of what you see is him like peering out the bus window and being like, oh, the Washington Monument. Oh, this thing. Oh, he went to go look at the Constitution. Like it's a montage, you know? I feel like it either needs to be shorter or it needs to be longer. It needs to be more in depth. Yeah. Like when he goes to see the Constitution, I want to see like, what is his reaction? Not just... There's the Constitution in the Smithsonian. (laughs) But like when you get out of the montage parts for the Lincoln Memorial, when you actually see Jimmy Stewart wandering around and reacting to Washington, I did kind of think to myself that we don't do this anymore in a way where I kind of miss it. Hollywood right now is so into the like international box office that when you do travel logs like this, it's like, see China, see, see, come see the movie China. And not like you will never go to Washington. So here's what Washington looks like. Right. And the scene in the Lincoln Memorial is actually really moving. And while the little kid is reading out the Gettysburg Address, there's an elderly black man who comes in and takes off his hat and holds it to his chest. And there's a great Capra close up on his face and his eyes are full of tears, but he's smiling. And I was like, wow, this is one. It's like pretty ballsy move in 1939 because this was the time when the South was doing all of their like, let's build Confederate monuments thing it's not a subtle moment even though it's like very affecting and very beautiful and it's kind of like mr deans in that way where he goes to grant's tomb and it's again a big fuck you to the confederacy (laughs) and is made very explicitly that yeah where you could kind of go like ah yes the presidency respect for the office America, the, the the trappings of state. And instead, it's very explicitly like, no, the thing that is good about Lincoln is he saved the Union from the Confederacy, which fucking sucked and loved slaves. Right. And like, whoa. <laughs> and that's literally all they had to do was to make one of the visitors that they focus on a black man who is very moved while there's a little white blonde child reading the Gettysburg Address. And it's like, okay, yeah. And again, like one of the things that was very frustrating to me about this movie is that I feel like I am so cynical now (laughs) that watching that I was like, oh, that's actually quite moving. But also like, oh, my God, America now. I I... (laughs) And like America then, too, you know, but I feel like there's no ability for me to tap into that kind of idealism, even if I'm moved by it. I think that's true. And I think I would say to me, the big flaw of this movie versus Mr. Deeds is that it doesn't do enough to test that idealism and to ask what is really eternal and important about that idealism the way that Mr. Deeds does. That our act two, I don't think, is nearly as good because in Mr. Deeds, it does say that the people who are judgmental of him and think that he's a country bumpkin are jerks and are wrong. But it also goes like, hey, he's a flawed dude who doesn't handle this all that well. And that like he has to learn how to actually embody those ideals that he has, which is very difficult mm-hmm. in a way where this movie kind of just goes like, are you going to be faithful to your ideals or not? Instead of having you kind of, I guess, learn a lesson about what it means to be faithful to those ideals. Because when we get to the filibuster, which I weirdly feel like won't take that long because act two of this movie goes weirdly fast. But like 
when we get to the filibuster, one of the things that I was joking about with Nikki is that the filibuster is supposedly like over 24 hours long, but at no point do you cut back to him where he's reading anything even vaguely boring. <laughs> you always cut back and it's like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and not the part where he's like reading the interstate commerce clause, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> like the part where government is boring is just like completely not in this movie. But I want to say like, I'm not necessarily criticizing this movie for that frustration I felt. I'm like criticizing the timeline we live in. <laughs> and also like a little bit myself for being that cynical about can government be a center of idealism? <laughs> and no is the answer, un- unfortunately. Well, yeah, I don't know. We'll get into how the actual politics of this movie works or doesn't work at all when we get to Act 3, because I think it obviously is kind of ridiculous in a Frank Capra kind of way. But I think the sort of things he chooses to have realism about and not is really interesting. Yeah. But after taking a literal bus tour of Washington, D.C.'s greatest monuments, he finally shows up at the Capitol building and meets his love interest, Jean Arthur playing a character named Clarissa Saunders. And I think she does great work when this film gives her something to do. I actually loved her in this. I felt like her character in this movie was actually quite a bit more interesting and more complicated than her character in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I mean, first of all, she's not a love interest straight out of the gate. We know that she's going to be the love interest because it's a Frank Capra movie and it's Gene Arthur. <laughs> right. But she is very cynical about everything in Washington. She is not impressed by his wide-eyed idealism at first. She has a friendship with this journalist named Diz and kind of leads him on all the time. Not kind of. She's like, let's get married. And then is like, nah, just kidding. <laughs> So she's like kind of a complicated character who definitely has some flaws in a way that I didn't feel was really the case in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Like she starts out being tired of being a reporter, but she gets won over pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think both for better and for worse, the thing about this movie is she's the one that actually has an arc. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mr. Smith doesn't really have an arc. He just is a good, honest boy that believes in the promise of America. He has a story arc, but not a character arc. Right, exactly. And she has this whole arc of being disillusioned with Washington and with politics and being won over both by his idealism, but also by just him personally and not being able to watch the machine roll over this guy. Oh, speaking of the press... Before he shows up at his office, yes. somehow he ends up going out with a bunch of reporters or like- She does that to him. Right, okay. That's after he gets to his office. Oh, it is after, okay. She does that to him to like make some quick cash because she's so cynical and out of it, she's kind of willing to get fired. And so she kind of takes him out with some reporters that will set him up and write a damaging story about him. Which is also, I think, a moment where you're kind of seeing the wiring of when this was a Mr. Deeds sequel. And hilariously, the only thing he does that can be used to, like, actually make fun of him is he does a bird call for them. And he looks kind of silly doing a bird call. And they make it like he gets his first whiff of Washington because it looks like he's holding his nose. (laughs) Yes. And then, for some reason, that's supposed to be damaging enough that they're not going to swear him in as a senator. (laughs) 
and the older senator, Senator Payne, stands up for him and brings him in. And he goes on a rampage and starts just punching reporters, which I love is not a thing that ever gets turned into a news story that makes him look bad. That scene is so interesting to me because the way that the reporters act, which is to sit him down and be like, listen, kid, this is how it works in this town. We just make fun of all of the political people because you're all terrible and it's our job to tell people that you're terrible and freedom of the press. And that his reaction is to be like, oh, yeah, freedom of the press. That's a thing. And also, wait, what about everything being terrible? <laughs> Which is one of the things that you were talking about with how the dissemination of information is actually a really interesting thing to compare to today and how it's a very big issue in this movie. And the fact that the press corps has a really antagonistic relationship with the people in power in Washington was like, yeah, okay. But then when they sit down with the person whose nose they've bloodied and explain why, he's like, oh, okay, I understand this. I was talking to Nikki about how weirdly cynical every 1930s movie is about the press, like from a modern perspective where like post-Watergate, the press is our protector and will save American democracy. and The fifth estate, yeah. That every 30s movie is like, the press is garbage and everyone who works for a newspaper is a trash person who's going to hell. <laughs> and like, that, that, like. The news, yeah, the press makes people commit suicide. Mm hmm. This movie is weirdly as cynical as any movie we've seen about the, like, institution of the press. But when you are talking to the individual guys, are like, yeah, man, we're just doing our job. And they all seem okay. They all seem like better people than like the senators on an average basis. Diz is a member of the press and seems like a real stand-up guy. Yeah, he's definitely in no way a villain in this piece. It was kind of the same story in Mr. Deeds as like the institutional pressure in the press was to be shitty to Mr. Deeds and do shitty stuff. But the individual people you met were like actual people with internal lives who were just doing their job and seemed pretty chill. Right. That was interesting to me because it was all almost a reversal of the way other movies treat the press where like in theory we should love the press but it's all these muckraking journalists that ruin it for us which doesn't really check out but the point is when he sits down with the press he kind of figures out he is kind of just a name that's there to say I to stuff that like that's why he got appointed which is correct that's why he got appointed a hundred percent yeah he's just supposed to vote exactly in lockstep with pain and be two votes instead of one and he decides he's not gonna do that and sort of starts trying to write up this bill for a boy ranger camp that kids are going to pay back with like small change donations over the course of years which is, I'm not sure the math on that works out, but that's fine because it gets us a lot more cute kids. Oh, yeah. Something we should mention is that in the Senate, right. the pages, and this was apparently true, they're children. And I don't mean children in the sense of they are under 18. I mean, like, they're 10. And there's one in particular whose name is Richard, but he calls him Dickie, who is a page boy. He's the main page boy. 
And he comes in and shows Mr. Smith where his desk is. And he's like, you can sit here. This was uh, Daniel Webster's desk. Yes. That whole scene is great. Oh, it's totally great. And he's like, oh, would you like a boy ranger button? And the kid takes it and is like, gee, thanks. That kid is freaking adorable. What's great about that scene is it, one, it does so much exposition you have to do about how the Senate works and where everybody's going to be standing for the big climactic filibuster shit in Act 3 and does it so efficiently and does it with a cute little kid. So you're like, I don't care. Keep talking forever about where people sit in the Senate, child. Oh, that's the majority leader? Can you tell me who every senator is, please? Yes. And then two establishes with that boy ranger button that Mr. Smith is going to have like his own Baker Street Irregulars, that there is a literal small army of page boys that are all going to be down with whatever Mr. Smith does because he gives them cool pins and teaches them boy ranger shit. Yes. That ends up being weirdly pivotal like five times. (laughs) Uh, but the, uh... The bill. The bill, thank you. Yes. He and Gene Arthur kind of sit down and have their, like... They've already met, but this is weirdly their meet-cute scene. (laughs) This is, like, when they start paying attention to each other, is her explaining how a bill becomes a law, (laughs) and him just trying through sheer force of will to go, like, okay, but we're doing it anyway, through every single problem of American governance... And, like, orders in food and asks her about her name. And it's all extremely charming. Yeah, and her explanation of how a bill becomes a law is not Schoolhouse Rock. No. (laughs) She's like, first of all, you have an idea. And then let's say we get it written in record time, like, three or four days. And he says, yeah, like, tonight. She's like, tonight. Okay, we get it written tonight. And then all of the committees that it has to go through... And how if you're really lucky, you might vote on it like two years from now. And none of this dulls his enthusiasm at all. It really made me appreciate Jimmy Stewart in a way that up until this point, I had been making a lot of comparisons to Gary Cooper because he's basically playing the same role. And there's a scene where he meets Susan and Senator Payne at their home. And there's an absolutely incredible Capra moment where the whole shot is actually just on his hands and him fumbling with and dropping his hat over and over again while he's talking to her. <laughs> and he walks out of the apartment and trips over a table. And I thought, well, <laughs> Gary Cooper is a way funnier father than this guy. Because Gary Cooper's trash can fall. In Mr. God, just thinking about it in Mr. Deeds makes me laugh. But he has a really gentle and sort of tender masculine sexuality thing going on in this scene and i was like okay yeah i get it now i get why this guy was cast a whole lot is because when he does finally turn his attention on the woman in the scene he is captivated and he is so present and it's incredibly sexy yeah When I sort of talk about it being a problem with this film, I think it's kind of a structural problem and not a problem, like, internal to the film, because I agree that it works, and it works because of Jimmy Stewart. But 
there's this thing where Mr. Smith is like naturally charismatic and naturally a politician and kind of doesn't know it. There's kind of a he's so beautiful and he just doesn't know thing to his mastery of politics where I kind of missed the thing that Mr. Deeds brought to it, where, like, he is kind of a fuck-up, actually. But he learns his lesson. Gary Cooper is incredibly handsome, but Mm -hmm. for some reason you forget that in Mr. Deeds. It is neither, like, a handicap or a benefit to him. It's just a fact. If Gary Cooper was doing this scene with Gene Arthur, I don't know that I would have had that same sort of melting reaction. Right, exactly. It isn't what this movie calls for. Like, this movie calls for Jimmy Stewart. If they did get Gary Cooper, it would be, plot-wise, I think, a fairly similar movie, but all of this Act 2 stuff would be significantly rewritten, and probably was, for, like, this very different energy and this very different way that a person is captivating and attractive. This scene with Gary Cooper would have felt... It angered me at first, because I was like, clearly she wants to go home. Because she has that line about how, you know, there is a custom in all civilized countries called dinner. Yeah. And he's like, oh, we'll just order something. And I was like, fuck you, dude. Your secretary wants to go home. (laughs) Somehow he sort of worked me out of that. And I don't feel like Gary Cooper would have worked me out of that. I still would have been like, dude, she just wants to go home. My God, you are such a pain in the ass. Yeah, the whole thing is so on a razor's edge toward him being awful. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of what I was saying about the way Gary Cooper treated all of his servants in Mr. Deeds. He has this energy of just kind of assuming that that help will be there for him in this way that plays differently than Jimmy Stewart assuming that because it reads in Jimmy Stewart like it hadn't occurred to him anyone would want to go home and sleep. Yeah. That, that like that might be a useful part of her day. There's a certain vulnerability to Jimmy Stewart from Jump that I don't think was in Gary Cooper. It was like very entitled, which made the break so effective yeah because you're like my god this guy has been walking through life just totally confident about everything i mean he's like independently wealthy before he ever inherits this massive amount of money writing greeting card poems yeah this guy absolutely has straight white man confidence (laughs) and jimmy stewart is not confident at all yeah he's excited and he's enthusiastic but he's lacking that sort of confidence that the world owes him something well and what's interesting is he is confident around children yes you see that charisma and that confidence as a politician but only when he is around kids and he very clearly plays it as like not just humble but very genuinely kind of unprepared for this when he's dealing with adults for the first two-thirds of the movie. Yeah, he's very childlike. Anyway, they write this bill, and their romantic spark starts up, but then we come to the problem, which is that the land he wants is land that is being bought up as part of a graft scheme around a dam that's going to be built in untitled Midwestern state. As part of a big appropriations bill that is an obvious New Deal sort of thing that's going to feed people all over the country and give people jobs all over the country. Part of that bill is this dam that is somehow going to make Taylor rich. Taylor is the guy who runs the political machine with Senator Payne. Which also unnamed party. Yeah. In addition to unnamed state. Yes. The fact that there's this overlapping land use thing means that 
Jimmy Stewart figures out the graft that's going on here. No, she tells him. She tells him straight out because she gets super drunk with Diz and is like, this sucks. I'm going to quit. And Payne has his daughter take him out so he doesn't come to the Senate the day that the bill is going to be discussed. Oh, right. So that he's not on the floor. Right, right, right. That's why he gives up on Susan is because he knows that she's actually not interested in him at all. It is just manipulating him for the benefit of her dad. Right. And Saunders is like, you want to know what Susan Payne is? Here's this bill. <laughs> right. He was going to figure it out, and they were like, well, he can't figure it out, so they have him go out with Susan, and she gets drunk and does everything Susan just says. Uh, like, our Susan on the podcast. Susan with a Z. <laughs> yes. The good Susan. <laughs> and then there's this sort of interesting sequence where Taylor tries to, like, buy him out and buy him onto the machine and tells him that Senator Payne is bought and Jimmy Stewart won't believe it. And goes and is going to make a principled stand, but then, like a sucker, immediately before he's going to reveal the whole graft operation, yields for a question from Senator Payne, which Payne uses as an opportunity to paint him as the one who is trying to make money off of this good, honest dam that they're building. Not off of the dam, off of the boys' camp, that he's trying to make money off of children. Right. Off of the same land, though. Yes. That the thing that's going to make it profitable is the dam deal, and that he is going to use this boys' camp as a cover to... Honestly, I don't understand why the boys camp. Anyway. No, the dam wouldn't be built. So if they do the boys camp, the boys buy up the land using a loan from the government. Then the land is no longer able to be used for the dam. Right. But I don't understand in the fiction of what his scandal is supposed to be. I don't understand why he would have introduced the bill about the boys camp. Because... He will get the money from all the boys who come to the camp for the land because he owns it because they forged a deed that he didn't actually sign and a contract that he didn't actually sign saying that he owned that land. Oh, OK, OK. Yeah. So it was it would block it. OK, I get it now. I thought the deal was that like the building of the dam was going to bring property prices way up for him because that's what the actual graft is. <laughs> that owning all that land makes you a shit ton more money when the dam gets built. But the idea of the fake one is that the dam doesn't get built and he just makes money off the boys club. Right. Okay. I got it now. It is very convoluted. <laughs> for sure. Like most things in politics. Right. I think it's kind of intentional that it is convoluted in that way, because then the idea of who gets to frame this story, it's very interesting that in the sequence where they talk about all the forged documents, they include an expert who goes like, he definitely didn't sign this. It isn't just that they brought in people who 100% back up anything that the machine says. It's that they're able to frame whose opinion is and isn't legitimate and what story is being told. Right, because they have three handwriting specialists and the first one is like, it's my opinion that this is absolutely not forged. And the next guy says, this is definitely a forgery. And then you have the one who says, I would stake my 20 years of professional experience on this being a real signature. And I was like, no! Yeah. <laughs> we were so close! <laughs> 
But the fix is in is the point of that whole montage. He gets called to defend himself and he can't. He's just so upset and overwhelmed that he just runs out. Yeah, and gets ready to go home and is... She finds him at the Lincoln Memorial, right? Yeah, he's got his bags packed and he's at the Lincoln Memorial and he walks over to a shadowy part of it away from Lincoln and sits on his suitcase in another just incredibly beautiful Capra shot that is backlit. So really you just see the silhouette of him sitting on the suitcase with his head in his hands and she comes over and leans against a column. It's not a noir film, and it's the most noir shot I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I think more noir shit should happen. This is like a complete tangent, and we're going like full movie podcast. Do it! More noir shit should happen in Washington, because all of it is extremely good. Three Days of the Condor is available for free on Amazon Prime. And I've watched it like three times this year. And all of the shit in Washington is filmed at night. And all of it is so good. Specifically because you don't really get that very much. Right. It's just like Max von Sydow in a trench coat and a fedora crossing the Potomac and switching over into French when people get nearby. Because he's talking about murdering people to keep political secrets. And you're like, fuck yeah. Yeah, the setting of Washington is great for noir because you've got that super high contrast between all of the white marble and then if you do it at night really really deep shadows right i wish more people did like small scale noir because it's always the vice president plotting to kill the president to become president right and i wish there was more just like some representative sleeping around and is willing to kill for that secret because it's boring and pedestrian and they like have an old painting or something get on it david <laughs> yeah that's fair <laughs> Anyway, great noir sequence, and she comes in and is like, hey, I've got a plan for you, and it's called You Look Desperate and Hot and Talk for 20 Hours. <laughs> that is actually exactly what the plan is. <laughs> and he's crying, and like after the beautiful noir shot, they do like a really hard close-up on his face, and he just looks so beaten down. And one thing that I have trouble with in this movie is that Saunders is a very maternal figure in this movie, that she is very much like taking this boy and forming him into a man and she is guiding him through his job, which to be fair, like I've been an executive assistant, that is literally what you do. But she has a statement at some point where she says that she was really proud of him presenting the bill. She felt like she was sending her little boy off to school for the first time. And I was like, wow, you really just made the subtext text. We'll get into this. Nikki was like very taken aback by how sudden the ending of this movie is. Once the filibuster is resolved, you're done with the movie in 30 seconds. If that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is apparently some filmed but removed additional ending content of the two of them like going back home and getting married and the political machine is fully destroyed and you see it. You deal with the fallout of the events in a way where it's like, I can see why they cut it. Me too. Because there is a way where like, if you leave where this movie leaves, you don't have to think about all that stuff. And all that stuff has some like, wait, what happens with, why would, or do they, she just marries him? What are, are, are they happy? What <laughs> happens to all the other businessmen? A senator just tried to shoot himself in the head on the floor of the Senate. What's like? Yeah. Um, but coming back to the present, 
sorry for the huge spoilers for 20 minutes from now, he is going to go back home. And she has this plan to stop it, which is that he is going to go and filibuster until the people back home in Flerzenfe State <laughs> can learn about what's really going on. And then that kind of just happens. And <laughs> it's a powerhouse performance by Jimmy Stewart, like one of the best performances of all time. Oh, God, it's amazing. And it's almost impossible to really sit down and analyze it without a whole other hour of this podcast. For sure. Because there's so much maneuvering stuff. There's so much fun stuff in there that she's up in the gallery. And th there's this slow, almost wordless process where the president pro tem of the Senate is like slowly won over to him and like is willing to kind of bend some rules around procedure where by the end of the movie, he has very clearly figured out that Jimmy Stewart is getting all of his signaling from her up in the gallery about what he should be doing and is just like, come on, guys, kind of try and keep it in your pants. This is ridiculous. Uh, but like, lets it happen anyway. And he's, you know, reading the Constitution while being Jimmy Stewart, which there ought to be a law. <laughs> yeah, and the law should be that it should happen all the time. <laughs> Correct. And the president of the Senate is played by Harry Carey, who was best known as an early Western star. Like, he was the go-to cowboy guy. And he's older at this point in history, because he started out in 1910. And his performance is mostly wordless and is absolutely brilliant. There's a lot of times where he's, like, covering his mouth because he's clearly laughing at what's going on and how frustrated all the senators are getting. It's never addressed if he's actually president pro tempore or if he's the vice president, because the president of the Senate is the vice president, but sometimes the vice president's not there, and then it's just whoever is sitting in the chair is addressed as Mr. President or Madam President. Yeah. But I, I kind of like that it's never specified whether he's actually a member of Congress or if he is a member of the executive branch on a technicality, and this is hilarious to him because he hates Congress. <laughs> well, I mean, I think either way- It's great. It definitely <laughs> plays as- just like you having a job you don't hate, but do have enough reservations about that it's really fun to see somebody come in and start wrecking the place, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's great. The like extremely dark cuts to what's going on back home in the state with the political machine, where straight up some gangsters murder newsboy kids. They're not even newsboy kids. They're just the boy rangers. Yeah. They printed their own newspaper because Taylor makes sure that all of the actual newspapers block the story of what's going on and print bad stuff about Mr. Smith. Yeah. So the boy rangers, because Saunders calls Smith's mom and is like, you gotta get the boy rangers to put together a paper and they go out. There's multiple scenes in this montage of, like, adult humans stealing the papers from kids. At one point, a car runs over, like, a little wagon that they were using to pull the papers around. And there's, like, parades. All of this apparently happens, by the way, in 24 hours. Right. There is an element of, like, how did they get the word out that well, actually, that there's a parade organized? I always think it is so funny whenever I read about how many American politicians were like, this makes the Senate look bad and you can't do this. Because this movie is so ridiculously over-the-top patriotic and believing in democratic liberal values. Right, exactly. Like, it makes 
corruption look bad, but it doesn't make the idea of the Senate look bad. (laughs) But I think the thing that got so many people in politics so upset, which is really telling on themselves, is how much that sequence is like one-to-one an instruction booklet on how political machines worked in the 30s. Right. And it was like through violence, like literally... (laughs) would go around with fire hoses and like they didn't invent that for the civil rights movement i'm pretty sure those were cops that they paid off oh for sure yeah and then there are mobsters who literally run over some kids in the street yeah there's like six kids in a car and they hit it and then it like smash cuts to mrs smith on the phone with saunders being like you have to tell jefferson to stop they're hurting kids all over the city and i was like okay i can buy a lot of this but literally murdering six or seven children oh i totally believed that okay (laughs) to me that is the realest this movie ever gets (laughs) all right (laughs) the sequence of just like you silence dissent through any means necessary and like it works for a while you're going to be able to outlast a filibuster. You're going to be able to do that longer than one guy can talk. Oh, and one of the things that they do in that scene back home, and this does become important in a second, is the Taylor machine is doing all of these parades and putting up all of these wheat paste signs and everything that say to wire Congress, to send telegrams to Congress telling them what you think about Jefferson Smith. Yeah, I like how good they are at differentiating signs made by the political machine and signs made by actual natural political reactions people are having. Right. And the parade, the one for Senator Smith is like, just people marching and they have homemade signs. And then the one that the political machine has, has like a train float and amplified sound that's like, why are your senators? Why are your senators? <laughs> to me, the thing that jumped out to me, because I've married a graphic designer, is that all the political machine signs use the same font. That Wire Congress is in the same font on the train and on the bus, on everything. Whereas with the Mr. Smith signs, people are clearly like designing all their own signs individually at home and bringing them in. Um, And not in a way where it's like people just painted the sign. They still look very professional, but they don't look like one thing from the top down ordered how it should look. There's no unified design. Exactly. Yeah. But you can fool some of the people some of the time. So the Wire Congress stuff gets like 50,000 telegrams sent in telling him to stop. And saying that, you know, he's a crook and they don't like him and whatever. Yeah. And Payton comes in and says, you want to hear what the people back home think? Here you go. Bring them in, boys. And they like bring in just bushels of telegrams and... He digs his hands into them, Jimmy Stewart does, and pulls them out and then goes to the next bin and the next bin. And he's trying to find just one that says anything positive about what he is doing. And then he throws them all up in the air and has a total freak out and then faints. (laughs) But it's a great total freak out. And this is the thing I think the Wikipedia summary leaves out because they say that the thing that keeps him going is a smile from the president of the Senate, which is technically true. But the other thing that keeps him going is that the last thing he says before he faints is that this is a lost cause and a lost cause is the only cause worth fighting for and worth dying for, which is the conversation he had with Senator Payne on the train 
about his dad. He says it to Senator Payne. He says, Senator Payne used to know this and points at him and really points him out. Under the weight of a full-on Jimmy Stewart charismatic performance for 20 hours, Senator Payne does the only sensible thing and goes outside and tries to shoot himself in the head. In the hallway of the Senate. Yeah. In the Capitol building. (laughs) Which is simultaneously the wildest thing in American political history if it happened. And also kind of like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what you would do. Like in the context of the film. And someone wrestles the gun from him and he says, no, I don't deserve to be a senator. I don't deserve to live. (laughs) And actually, I wouldn't say that that would have been the wildest thing in political history in America, because to me, it will always be that Aaron Burr tried to sell the United States to Mexico if Mexico would back him in overthrowing the United States. That's fair. But also, like, that was so early that it was like it was barely America yet. (laughs) I feel like if that happened, we would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. It was a very young country. People were really, like, wheeling and dealing and figuring out what the hell we were doing with that continent all over the place. (gasps) It's that that didn't work, and then there were 200 more years of American political history after it that makes that wild as shit. Whereas this is just like, are you telling me that, like, a senator tried to shoot himself in the head and then the next day people just came to work? Like... (laughs) Well, we don't actually know. Right. Which we're getting to. (laughs) In addition to trying to kill himself, runs back in and confesses to everything. And then everyone celebrates and the president of the Senate is like, hell yeah, he did it. And bangs his gavel a couple of times and then that's the end of the movie. It's that quick. I actually watched this scene twice because when it ended the first time I was like, for for real? And then I watched it again and like knowing that it was coming and I was like, oh, actually, this is a really good place to end this because one, he does win. Jefferson Smith wins by virtue of the fact that Payne confesses the whole scheme, but he doesn't wake up for it. All of the other stuff that could come afterward and the stuff that you were saying that they cut is actually so much more interesting if you get to imagine on your own what it actually would be. Like, did everyone come in the next day to work? Just like, yeah, we got to go be senators today. (laughs) I think that's the thing is that like everything that follows from that ending is either kind of an anticlimax Or it's this complication you don't want to dig into. Right. Like, is the Senate closed for a week? Are they in recess because of this? What happens to Payne? Does he go to jail? Like, Right. Does Guy Kibbe have to pick another senator now? Is he implicated in this whole thing? Like, what does it mean for the Taylor machine to have been broken? It's like fucking midi-chlorians. Like, you don't need to know how that all works. You don't want to know. Right. And I think there's also in it, there is a potential for a more cynical response as well, which is just that, like, okay, maybe the Taylor machine is broken, but there's other states and there are other parties and there's other machinations that will keep going because that's just the nature of the beast. And I think that having that uncertainty and having it be like, well, it's great that this guy who is really handsome won, but like how much does that really affect the system is sort of up to the individual who's watching the movie. You get both your underdog cake and you then get to eat whatever your idealism or cynicism is too. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think that that's why, despite the fact that, again, the ending is wild. The idea that that would ever happen right now seems like one of the things I'm very cynical about and think about a lot is that so much of our political system runs tacitly on the ability of human beings to feel shame. Wow, and a thing we never realized until quite recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, and that like... That's what this entire movie turns on. That that is actually the safeguard to democracy in this film. And that the reveal of just, oh no, they've trained themselves to just never feel shame now. That's how they get you. And that there is a breaking point. That even if you have talked yourself out of it for so long because of the power and the money and the influence that you get, that there is a point where you go, okay, this has gone too far and I actually can't keep this wall up anymore. And that's what I was talking about with my own cynicism in watching this and comparing it to the current political environment. And I'm not just talking about the president that we have now, but like fucking these senators who are coming out of the woodwork, and I watch way too much C-SPAN, who shamelessly defend absolutely reprehensible things and manage to twist it into being somehow the other party's fault. And watching hearings like that and going, how is this happening? How do you sit here and do this is so mind blowing. And a movie that hinges entirely on these people having some sort of conscience (laughs) that eventually a line gets crossed where you confess that you're a piece of shit is a fantasy, even more than the West Wing. (laughs) Yeah. Again, I think what makes it work is the particular story of Senator Payne and the performance of Claude Rains, because I think even in the 30s, there was this sense of, like, Jimmy Stewart can't just shame anybody, right? That, like, if it was just some rando in the room that was doing this to him, this kind of wouldn't have worked. The thing that makes it work is the other person also has some level of fundamental decency that they can't completely abandon. Right. And that if that wasn't there, because like Taylor doesn't have that fundamental level of decency. No, he's like, just kill kids. I don't care. Get it done. (laughs) I love that in the first scene of him and Payne talking, like at the very start of the movie, Payne like suggests that this complicates matters and let's just not do this whole damn graft business and do it later. Like, wait until things are more settled. We'll take it out of the appropriations bill and we'll talk about it as its own thing. And the only pushback Taylor does or has to do is, oh, that would be a shame. Not even like, oh, no, it can only work now. All the money would be lost. That, like, it's now or never. We have to press the trigger. It's just like, I don't know, I've done all this work and I want the money. Let's do it. Well, he does actually say we're on top right now and either we do this and we're unstoppable or we don't and it's the end. Well, the justification he gives for that is that they've bought up all this land and it will not be worth as much money if other people have time to buy up land. Right. Yeah, that's true. It isn't that like it won't work or that their political machines will be destroyed and so they must do it. It's just now is the time to make the maximum amount of money, so they must do it. (laughs) He's just so effectively a creep from scene one, and the movie never pretends he's anything other than that. Yeah, and Claude Rains is a more complex 
character than that. He's fast becoming one of my favorite actors. He's definitely, like, underrated. That he isn't up there with, like, the great names of this period. I knew the name before we started this, but you don't hear it thrown around the way you hear Jimmy Stewart thrown around. I mean, the only reason I knew his name is because it's in the first song of... Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, honestly, that's probably true for me, too. Claude Rains was the Invisible Man. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, so he was some sort of, you know, B-movie star. But no, it turns out, actually, that he was incredibly well-respected and brilliant. He does complex really well. Yeah. And when he plays just an outright villain like he did in Robin Hood, he's also really good at chewing scenery, but he can be incredibly restrained and subtle. And this is the best performance we've seen by him. Not for nothing that it's also the best movie we've seen him in. (laughs) Yeah. Should we rate this movie now that we've talked about it for over an hour? Sure. Yeah, I think we should. Uh, I'm gonna give it... What have I ever given a nine? I don't know. I, uh, I'm not sure you have ever given a nine. I feel like there's something I gave a nine. You jump to ten faster than I do. I think, like, I've talked you down to a nine before. Because I want to give it one point less than... Wizard of Oz? No. <laughs> okay. I think, actually, didn't I give Mr. Deeds a 10? I Yes, you did. I think. Okay, so I'm going to give this a 9. Well, I'm actually going to give it an 8. Um, that's fair. I'm, I, like, I'm kind of torn between the same two things, and I'm also willing to go 8, because Mr. Deeds is a little bit better of a movie than this. It's another one of those, like, the highs are higher, but the lows are a little bit lower thing. Yeah. When this movie is really on, it's really fucking on. But the lows are so extreme. Wait, no, sorry. That's something different. The lows are not bad as compared to other movies that we could talk about. Right. I was just going for the Rilo Kylie reference. Oh, yeah. The lows are not so extreme. The lows are just, there's kind of a down period in the second act. Yeah. The stuff with Diz and Saunders having their, like, flirtation and him being like, oh, yeah, you're in love with this kid, aren't you? Does it really ever come to anything? They could have just been friends. Yeah. I don't know. I I mean, honestly, I like it just because it gives us that scene where the two of them are drunk and plan to get married. But I just really like that scene. It doesn't come to anything. You're right. You don't have to do any of it. It just kind of middles around for a while. And none of that middle stuff, none of it really ever comes to anything except for him figuring out what the scheme is. Yeah. The stuff with Susan, I understand that she has to be there for a particular thing where he's not at the senate that day but i feel like they could have done that in some other way and the build-up of him being like oh i really really like her and then finding this out and there's no confrontation or anything with her like she's such a prop i mean honestly so is saunders for like a lot of the movie she's kind of a prize that he won and it's just a much more valuable prize than susan but she has a journey yes for sure susan has nothing no the only thing that we ever see is her being like oh he's so silly is she actually fully evil or what is her motivation right and like the short answer is the movie doesn't care right yeah i think I think eight is perfectly fair for it. It's it's a very good film, but it's not quite great in the way that the best films that we've seen are. Yeah. I think cinematographically, it is one of Capra's, if not Capra's, best when it's on. Yeah. But there are fewer, like, big Capra, brilliant, interesting, nobody-would-ever-shoot-this-way this shots. 
the ones that are there are so good, but a lot of the movie doesn't have anything that is like that. Like it happened one night, felt like every single shot was so composed. And this felt like there were times where it was just trying to move the story along. Yeah. Again, there's that act two section where just all of the camera work seems weirdly perfunctory. Yeah, totally. Because the story is weirdly perfunctory. But like, you're right. When it's on, when the filibuster is happening, when he's doing that showy shit with the hat, which is great. Really, even in the like Washington DC montage sequence... When he's putting effort into it, it's some of the best work he's done. But then there's also just kind of these periods where the movie seems to go like, okay, and now we got to do this. Yeah. Now we've got to have a scene where they fall in love because they got to be in love for Act 3. So let's go. Yeah. And that scene in particular was another one that I went back and watched a second time. And while Jimmy Stewart is giving this incredible performance with all of this hot, tender masculinity... I felt like there were some really missed opportunities for Capra to go for some cool camera shit there, and it didn't happen. Whereas, like, the filibuster, every shot is like, why are we shooting this basically on the desk of the president of the Senate so his hands look enormous because they're so close to the camera? And the answer is because it looks rad. Yeah, you can really tell that that is the set that Capra was, like, thrilled to have. Yeah. That set gets a better character introduction than nine-tenths of the characters in this movie. The beginning of the filibuster has, and I counted this, seven different angles. And still manages never to, like, break the movie rule where you, like, film from the wrong side and it suddenly fucks everything up. And he still fit in seven different angles. And I'm just like, okay, this guy is a genius. But also, where was this for the hour in the middle? Yeah. And it is over two hours? Yeah. And it doesn't need to be. You could cut 20 minutes from this, I think, pretty easily. But should you watch it, I'm gonna say yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, especially, like, if you watched Mr. Deeds and you liked it, and you haven't seen this, you should watch this movie. And you should watch Mr. Deeds if you haven't. Yeah, absolutely. And if nothing else, the last 30 minutes of the movie are absolutely worth watching. You can probably almost certainly find them somewhere online. And I would even argue that, like, if you don't want to put in the hour and a half plus to get there, you don't really need to, because Jimmy Stewart's performance is still, out of context, blisteringly brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. You could get away with just skipping to the end on this movie. I don't think you should, but you could. Yeah. So next week, we are watching... Nanachka. Yeah, Nanachka, which is our last Ernst Lubitsch film ever. Oh boy. Which I am simultaneously really psyched about, but also means I have to watch a fucking Ernst Lubitsch movie one more time. I remember saying in an early episode that, like, this is a specter that will haunt us. He comes back. Yeah. But I'll be damned if I didn't forget. (laughs) Well, welcome back to Ernst Lubitsch land. Uh, All right. Well, maybe I won't hate this one. So that's how he, that's also how he always gets me. It is. Every time, the first 20 minutes, I'm like, maybe this is the one where I'm all in. And then uh, then it's fucking not. Well, tune in next week and find <sighs> out. And until then... This was a movie. Again. We got two in a row. We got two in a row. Maybe a new record? I have to go back and check. I think two in a row is a record. <laughs> <laughs>
Ah, uh, so let's see if we can make it three. All right. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. You think I'm licked? You all think I'm licked? Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. <laughs>